0: Alright, you can be finding your place in James chapter number 2 tonight. We're going to be reading here in a moment the first 13 verses. I would just simply say, to give you a little context and background if you've not been here for the uh, beginning of the series, that when we talk about the book of James, when we talk about James's perspective on what Christianity was, what it meant, uh, I think that... Uh, framing it in the chronological time period that it was written in is of vital, vital importance. This is true of any book of the Bible, but it's especially true of the book of James. The book of James, we believe, to be the first New Testament book written. So before the Gospels were pinned down, before any of the Pauline epistles were pinned down, in fact, very likely before Paul was even saved, uh, the book of James was pinned down. We can we can peg its time frame uh, sometime before Paul's writings, because no mention is made of any of the doctrinal truth that is revealed in Paul's writings. Uh, it had to be sometime before then it had to be sometime after the death of Stephen. The reason we know that is because the very first verse of the book of James says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting." Uh, he's talking to believers and he's talking about uh, Jewish believers that had through persecution uh, that were told about in Acts chapter number eight, and verse number four, had driven the Jewish believers out of Jerusalem for the most part. There's still a small group there, uh, but had had driven out the mass of people that had been saved, many of them on the day of Pentecost, and they had gone abroad preaching and uh, sharing the gospel. Uh, so the fact that they're scattered tells us it was after Stephen's death, the fact that no mention is made of any of doctrinal truth that God revealed through Paul is a good indicator that it was written before God revealed that truth to Paul. So it is, uh, we believe, the earliest of the New Testament books that were written. When James wrote his epistle, uh, the term Christian was not even in the common vernacular. It wasn't until Antioch over in uh, Acts chapter, I believe, it's either 11 or 12, I've got it in my notes here, Acts chapter number 11, verse number 26, uh, believers were first called Christians at Antioch. So when James writes this, the term Christian isn't even... concept. You might say, well, preacher, if if the term Christian was not a concept, then what did James believe he was and what did he view believers as? In James's mind, the gospel has still not yet been sent forth. When he pins this down, it's still not been sent forth to the Gentiles. Uh, It is primarily a Jewish thing. And to James, there were two types of people in the world, two types of Jews in the world. There were Jews that had received the Messiah and Jews that had rejected the Messiah. So James very much saw uh, what we call Christianity as being the, the highest attainment, the loftiest manifestation of Old Testament Judaism. Now, I'm not trying to make him a Judaizer. Uh, I think that there were times later in his life when he yielded maybe to some of that. But throughout the inspired book of James, the book of James is inspired. Amen. I don't say any of this to degrade the, the truth and doctrine and purity of the book of James. Uh, throughout the entirety of the book of James, everything that he says, uh, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and that's the entirety of the book of James, every bit of it is in perfect harmony with the rest of the Word of God. But it's important that we understand that James' concept of Bible Christianity was very rudimentary. And he very much saw Christianity as being the natural extension or next step of Old Testament Judaism. He thought, here I am a Jew. I've been a worshiper of Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament. That God has sent his son. His son has died for me. And now as a Jew, I am realizing the plan that God has for the Jewish individual and ultimately for the Jewish nation. By the way, that is God's redemptive plan for the Jewish nation. Uh, one day, the Bible says, Every one of them will look on him whom they have pierced. Every eye will see that a nation will be born in a day. And I don't believe that verse is talking about 1948. Uh, I believe that verse is talking about at the end of the seven-year tribulation period that... Uh, Spiritually speaking, the Jewish nation will be born again. They'll believe on Him. They'll see Him whom they pierce. So James would have saw Bible Christianity as being an extension of Judaism. He would have seen it as being the culmination of Old Testament Judaistic teaching and doctrine. And because of that, it's important to not try to frame the book of James within the terms of the Pauline epistles. Doesn't mean they're not harmonious. But it means that there's a certain perspective you have to have, and this will become really important at the end of chapter number two when we talk about faith and works. But we even see some truths that, that pertain to it in this chapter. In fact, you will see in verse number two of the, uh, chapter number two, he says this, For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring, that word assembly is the same word that everywhere else in your Bible is synagogue. He was using the term synagogue. and I don't believe James was talking about going into the Jewish synagogues, but his perspective, his, his view of what the New Testament church was when they met together was in many ways the idea of a true synagogue, a true place of learning the truth of the Word of God. Uh, so, uh, you know, for James' perspective, is very, very different from what we would think of Bible Christianity today. It wasn't in su- uh, different in substance, uh, but it was different as far as the context of it. Now, in chapter number 2, we're going to go through the first 13 verses tonight. And they're essentially what the, the theme and topic that James is dealing with is partiality. The Bible term for it is being a respecter of persons. Uh, One of the things that James felt was vital to the health and well-being of the New Testament church was that they treat everybody the same, or at least that that how they treat them not be determined and dictated upon superficial, shallow, materialistic terms. Uh, Let's read these first 13 verses, and we'll jump into our outline tonight. He says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring, in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. And if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. So these 13 verses basically divide themselves into two categories. The first seven verses teach us that partiality is a sin against the Lord. The uh, last few verses, verses 8 to 13, uh, present to us the fact that partiality is a sin against the law. Now, you might say to yourself, well, preacher, I don't think partiality is a very big problem in the New Testament church. I hope it's not a problem in our church body. I don't believe it is. I strive for it not to be. As our church is growing, one of the things we try to combat against is clickishness and uh, sort of a tendency for people to coalesce into little groups and to leave people out. Uh, I'll tell you this, there's some folks that are just looking for a hurt feeling and they're going to get upset no matter what you do. But I truly believe that in our body of believers, there is not a segmented uh, attitude towards uh, the people within our church body. I hope that's true in your church as well. And you might be saying, well, preacher, I don't see it as a big problem. Well, let me say two things about that. One, there are churches where it is. There are churches where if you put a big enough tithe in the offering plate, or if you have enough influence and enough sway, uh, or if you serve in some meaningful ministry capacity, some important office, you are treated by a different set of standards and rules than the average person walking in. But I don't believe it's an issue in our church. I hope it's not. I hope it's not in yours as well. However, there is still a way in which this rears its head, and it's something we all have to combat against. We all have a tendency when somebody walks through the door to make up our mind about who they are, where they've been, what they've done, what they're capable of doing in the first few moments that we see them. Now, there's something inherent about human nature that does this, not something we strive to do. It is something that we do naturally, but we're not to operate on on the natural tendencies but the supernatural. We're not to operate according to the flesh, but according to grace and according to the Spirit of God. And we as believers have to actively combat against the propensity to look at someone and believe that we have them every bit figured out the moment that we see them based upon some superficial indicator. We have a tendency just like every other place does. I hope it doesn't manifest itself in the same way, but we all have that tendency. When we see someone walk in, we had just the other day, a lady walked in, uh she had come on it was on a Wednesday night and she had come, she didn't come into the service, and uh she had her her child with her. She came over to the children's ministry and uh child played with the kids for a little bit, and I praise the Lord for the opportunity that we had to give the gospel to her. But she walked in the door and I I'll just confess to you, right? Confession's good for the soul. I'll just quit being spiritual for a minute. I had my mind made up about her the moment she walked in. I knew what, I knew she was looking for. I mean, I, and, and I, the church that I grew up in was in a part of town where you had a lot of people that came up and asked for money and asked for help and stuff like that. And I tell you the best way, see somebody coming to you and they're getting ready to ask money from you, the best thing to do, don't be ugly, don't be mean, just walk up to them before they can say anything, look at them and say, hey, you ain't got two dollars, do you? And they don't know what to do, they just stare at you, you know? But it can make a cynic out of you, a spiritual cynic. And I'll admit to you, I was a little cynical. And uh, we wound up helping the lady a little bit. I I told her, I said, I want you to promise me you'll be at homecoming. She wasn't at homecoming. I don't know why. I don't know what took place. Something She could have had a car wreck. She could have been whatever it might have been. But we we live in such a cynical society today that we forego giving anyone the benefit of the doubt. Maybe we've just been burned one too many times. And we make snap judgments the moment we see someone. And, And most of the time, it is relative to this. How can they help me? How can they benefit me? And even in the church body, there's a tendency to view people as consumers of your energy and emotion and resources and producers of that very same energy, emotion, and resources. And we must actively combat against this attitude. There's a lot of people that God has used in a great way in my life that the first time you would have ever seen them, you wouldn't have thought much of them. But let me tell you something. There wouldn't be no reason to think much of me or you either. When God gets a hold of somebody's heart and life, there's no limit to how he can use them for his glory. So I want you to notice this very quickly. First, In the first three verses, we see the problem stated that James was observing in the local church. And he first uh, gives an indication of what this problem is. Verse number one, my brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to of persons. This is another term for partiality. Uh, Paul used this term in Romans chapter number two and verse number 11 when he said this about the nature of God, that there is no respect of persons with God. God never looks at a person and gauges them based upon what he can derive out of them. There's nothing you can do that impresses God. If you have the finest clothes, if you have the nicest car, if you have the most talents and abilities, if you work the hardest, if you give the most, whatever it might be, There's nothing you can do that impresses God, doesn't register uh, upon his His perception in any way, shape, fashion, or form. And it's a good thing it doesn't, because there'd be a lot of us that could never get in if it was based upon what we could do for God. Instead, the metric by which God interacts with us as sinners is his uh, infinite and abundant and limitless love. In other words, when he deals with mankind, it's not based upon what he can get from them, but what he can give to them. We have another word that you're quite familiar with concerning this, and it's the term grace. grace. Uh, later on, we're going to talk about mercy, and there's a lot we can say about it, and we will when we get there. Mercy is God withholding what we uh, do rightfully deserve, but grace is God bestowing in a favorable way that which we do not deserve. God, when he interacts with us, he doesn't interact with us based on what he can get out of us, but on what he can give to us. And as believers, if we ever have a calling, it's to mimic and replicate and imitate the person and personality and nature of God. If we're not being God-like, another word we have for it is godly, or if we're not being Christ-like, where we get the term, derived the idea of being a Christian from, then we've defeated the entire purpose for which we're walking upon this earth. We are called upon to be Christ-like. And James states clearly that one of the fundamental, one of the basic elemental principles behind being like God is not being a respecter of persons, not treating people in accordance with what you can derive out of them, but rather in how you can minister the truth and grace of God to them. He gives an illustration of this problem. He says, in case you're wondering what this might look like, look at verse 2 and 3. He says, for if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou here, or sit here under my footstool. He goes on to say you're being partial in yourselves. He lists three people involved in this little illustration. The first is the prosperous man. He describes him as a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel. It's interesting, that term for gold ring, it, it literally has the idea of being a gold ringed person. You know what I found? I, I remember hearing one time years ago, you can't hide money. You ever heard that, that statement before? You can't hide money. Most people, when they get a little bit of money, they'll figure out some way to let you know about it. And even in the house of God, there are people that have a tendency to be this way. Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's not. I certainly don't think people should be ashamed of the the prosperity and blessing that God has given them in their life. But I think what's implied here is that this man was defined by his prosperity. The thing he wanted you to know more about than anything was his money. As a pastor, there have been times... Uh, not very many. Uh, I, honestly, honest before the Lord, not very many. But there's there's been a time or two throughout the years where somebody's wanted to let me know just how much they give. <laughs> and listen, if you're here, let me just save you the wasted breath. I could care less what percentage of the tithes of this church come from you or from anybody else. As far as I'm concerned, they come from the Lord. You stubbed up and quit giving. God would drop it from the mouths of ravens if you had to do so. But there's always this awkwardness when they, the, the one or two times that people have done that, when they'll say, well, you know, preacher, I tithe pretty good. And then it just hangs out there, and I don't know what they're waiting for. I don't know if they're waiting for me to give them a hug or kiss them on the mouth or what. But it just, it, it could not matter less to me. Now, it's not that I don't appreciate when people labor and give and sacrifice. But it's that if we're going to use the blessing that God has given us as something to wield power... You know, later on he talks about the fact that rich men oppress you. And that term oppressed, you know what it literally it literally means? To exercise power over. Christ used the same... or the, the gospel writers used the same term when they talked about Christ delivering people that were oppressed by the devil. To exercise power and influence over. The fact of the matter is this. That if a person is identifying and characterizing their sense of purpose and meaning in life by the numbers in their bank accounts. They're a spiritual pygmy and they have a shallowness that can only be remedied by a humbling through the Spirit of God. This is a person that defines themselves that way. We see another hint towards this in the term goodly. Uh, we, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, you know, I don't talk a lot about Hebrew and Greek so I believe my King James Bible is just as inspired. Amen. Somebody say amen to that. Let me know I'm among some Bible-believing people. I believe my King James Bible is just as inspired. But it is interesting that that term goodly, it's derived from the same term that we get our term lamp from. It's the term lampros. And the same term that we get our, our word lamp from or light from. And it literally has the idea of a bright, shining apparel. Same word is used when Christ was on the Mount of Transfiguration; uh, that it was a bright, shining uh, trans. Uh, you know what, what's the word I'm looking for? A bright, shining uh, light was emanating from His vesture. In fact, that word's used later on whenever they take that purple robe and put it on the Lord Jesus. It has the idea of splendor and showiness. Literally, that their clothing is emanating light. I've seen people that have walked into the house of God, again, not very often. And uh, listen, I like the people look their best. I think it's a good thing. I think we ought to look our best for the Lord Jesus Christ. If your best is not even good enough to be in somebody else's closet, well, who cares? Just do your best. I I think that's the, the metric by which we ought to judge things. But I've seen people come in dressed to the nines and looking good, and man, they wanted everybody to know about it. You remember when kids used to dress up on Easter? Son, I'm telling you, I I used to work in bus ministry, and you ain't never seen dress nice until you've seen bus kids on Easter. All the rest of the year, man, they're in t-shirts and shorts. But come Easter, I'm talking about white shoes, bow ties, tails, little girls in frilly dresses. And there's a pride for a lot of them when they get off that bus. And, uh, you know, a lot of them, they don't have much and and it's probably the only really nice set of clothes that they even have in their closet. And there's a pride that they have. And you can see it's beaming on their face when they get off off the bus and walk in. Man, they're looking good and they got smell in their hair and they got I mean, they're looking they're, they're looking sharp, you know. But we sort of look at them in an endearing way. You know why? Because at the end of the day, we know that to to be that invested in your physical appearance is childish. We think it's cute. Because it's childish. If somebody else did that, we'd say, "Well, who do they think they are?" <laughs> and that's the kind of person that this is. So we see the prosperous man, and then walking right in behind this guy is the poor man. He's in vile raiment, and that doesn't mean necessarily that it was immodest or lurid, but it means rather that it was shabby and old clothing. And then we see a third man, and. Your notes say the pitiful man. I, I think probably the commentator was referencing the poor man, but I would rather take note of the, the person that James talks about at the beginning of verse number 3 when he says "And ye, ye. I don't know if they had ushers in the early New Testament church. It appears that they do because somebody had to be showing this man to his seat, And that person, whoever they are, I call them the partial man. The one that makes the decision to treat one better than the other. He takes these two people, he sits one of them in a good place, gives them the best seat. Takes the other ones, <laughs> don't even set him down, he just says stand over here or he says just sit here under my footstool and that that's not necessarily uh, allegorical it's not it's not metaphorical there was literally a place oftentimes where uh, at the lower seating where people would be sitting underneath the footstools of the people sitting up above them and it was considered a lowly place it was considered uh, not a a uh, very prominent place in fact Christ talked about that later on said that if you go into a place and uh, when you go to pick a seat don't pick the nice seat or else they might tell you to move. Instead, pick the lowly seat, and then you'll get the honor if they have you to get up and, uh, and, and go somewhere else. That's also good if you're stealing seats in a theater or a stadium. It's a good rule of thumb. So, uh, This man, he is partial. And listen to the problem studied. We see the problem stated in the first three verses. And listen to the problem studied. He gives, first off, the Christian perspective, and uh, he conveys it. And then, second, we see the Christian perspective confirmed. And listen to the indictment that he gives. He says, Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Now, when we read that verse, there's a tendency to think what he means is he's saying, You're judging them as having evil thoughts. But I don't believe that's what James is saying. He's saying, You're judging them, but your judgment is corrupted. Your judgment is faulty. You may not know everything there is to know about them. The prosperous man may have come by his wealth uh, through illicit means. The poor man may have just experienced a tragedy or even given everything that he has uh, to help the people of God. And even if those things are not true, at the end of the day, when we make a snap judgment, we're making it based upon uh, poor and corrupted and insufficient information. Just as a practical point of wisdom. It's good to not make snap judgments about people because you just don't know enough about them yet. I think he's also using that term evil going a step further and he's saying this, that when we yield ourselves to partiality in our treatment of one another, we give way and give door and give give place to the devil to ill-treat people uh, that don't deserve to be treated that way. I was counseling someone the other day. Uh, it was marital counseling and, and we were talking about the, the conflicts that they had and I'll tell you something, 90% of marital counseling that I've done has been summed up by saying, all right, you talk and you listen. And then when they're done saying, all right, now you talk and you listen. (laughs) And 90% of the time, that fixes most of the problems. And one of the individuals had a propensity to uh, just close down whenever there was conflict and to not talk, to not share, not communicate. And one of the things that I tried to get across to that person, as I said, when you do that, you are yielding your voice to the basest and worst fears of your spouse. In other words, instead of you communicating what's going on, you're allowing that person's anxiety and fear to speak for you and to define what you're mad about, what you're upset about, whatever it is uh, that the conflict has arisen about. And that's so dangerous because the devil operates on fear. He operates upon putting things in people's minds that are not reality, that are not truth, that are not the case. If he can get people to work off of no information or partial information, then he's made your mind his playground. Partiality does the same thing when we interact with people. It causes us to say, well, I don't know everything about him, but I'm going to presume to know everything about them. And it's not just that it's unwise, but it's wicked. It's wicked because the devil will take advantage of it, do damage to people. And no telling how many times that folks have walked into churches and because of the first interaction they had and the way they were treated, they said, I'm not coming back. I've got no interest in this. And they were probably making a snap judgment as well. But that was enough to cause them to never darken the doorstep of that particular church. Now, they'll, they'll answer to God for their uh, disconnectedness from the things of God. And I'm not implying it's all that person's fault, but we need to be cautious. We need to be prudent in the way that we interact with people. So we see the indictment recorded. Verse number 5, we see the indictment review. He says, "Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? In other words, he says, Hasn't God got a track record of using and blessing the poor of this world? We could go through the Old Testament we'd see it to be true. Uh, We could go through, of course, Job was a wealthy man, Abraham was a wealthy man, but you get two generations from Abraham and Jacob was not a wealthy man. He was born in a wealthy family, but he basically lived uh, the majority of his young life penniless after he was driven from his home by the anger and rage of Esau. In fact, he was so broke that he had to sell himself as an indentured servant to be able to purchase a woman he didn't want to get to the woman that he did want. Uh, You could go on through the Old Testament, Moses, of course, was, uh, was born poor and then raised in the palace and then poor again. David was a shepherd of meager means. On and on we could go. I mean, listen, you can go, you can look at Samuel in the Old Testament. Uh, Samuel was of, of, of meager origins. On and on we could go, people that God used in great and mighty ways. And then we come into the New Testament. None of the apostles were wealthy people. We have no reason to believe they were. Uh, the only one that might have been wealthy would have been Matthew because he was a tax collector. Somebody say amen to that. But once you're a born-again tax collector, you don't make no money. Hey, listen, uh, Zacchaeus taught us that, right? He wound up going in the hole to pay back what he had extorted from the people as a tax collector. None of the apostles were rich men. None of them were men of wealth. And even our Lord Jesus Christ, who could have lived any life that he wanted to live, it was the will of God for him to live a poor life. Now, listen, being poor doesn't make you right. Being, wrong, being rich doesn't make you wrong. Uh, it is not the wealth of a person, it's not the number of zeros in their bank account or the absence of them that, uh, that causes a man to be moral or righteous before God. Nor do we need to think that we can determine and dictate who a person is and, and who they are and what they do and their value in the eyes of God based upon those things. All throughout the Word of God, we see God uh, causing poor people to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And by the way, that implies two things that are very important. Uh, one, they're rich in faith. That implies a present wealth. Their wealth that they have, they are wealthy. They're not wealthy in the things of this world, but they're wealthy in spiritual things. You may not have a penny to your name. You may not have uh, a, a bean in your pantry. But if you know God, if you walk with God, if you pray and God hears you and answers your prayers, then that's a wealth far above what this world could ever fathom. No believer in the will of God is ever impoverished. They may not have what this world values, but they have what truly and really matters. And then he speaks of prospective wealth. He says heirs of the kingdom. Reminds you what Paul said when he said that we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. I got news. I I had a Bible teacher one time when I was in school, not my father-in-law. But uh, I did have him as a Bible teacher, but he wasn't the one that said this. Another Bible teacher made this statement one time, that's it's always stuck with me. He said, don't ever begrudge lost people for their prosperity, because at the end of the day, that's all they have. They're going to die and go to a devil's hell. You die as a believer, and you go to heaven and uh, live in the resplendence of God's glory. And then, of course, you know, the Bible teaches the, the thousand-year reign, we reign with him, and uh, then the ages endless beyond that. This life is the hardest that it will ever be for a believer. Once we leave this life as born-again children of God, things only get better. We mourn, we lament when people die, and I understand it. We're not weeping for where they're at, but where they're not. But at the end of the day, that's the greatest day of their life, uh, is the day that they enter into the presence of God. They never sense another uh, pain of, of physical torment or pain or sickness but they go to live and to enjoy and to rest, and they enter their reward. At the end of the day, as believers, that poor man that that we may be treating as lesser because they can't tithe or they can't give or they can't work or they can't labor or they can't teach or they can't minister or whatever metric by which we measure their poverty, we could be completely wrong and it could be completely irrelevant. Because they as children of God, if they're rich in faith, and they're rich in what truly matters. And they as children of God are heirs of the kingdom. It reminds me of what Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verse number 26. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound things which are mighty. Base things of this world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, To bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's how God interacts with humanity. That's how God, his perspective on worth and value as it relates to believers. So we see the indictment recorded, we see it reviewed, and then we see it repeated in verse number 6. He says, but ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats. That term for despised, it means to shame them. Jesus made a statement about the uh, Pharisees that they did to him dishonor. They dishonored him. Uh, It has the idea of of pouring shame upon them. You know, the truth of the matter is we need to always be cautious in how we interact with people, and, and we need to be cautious about showing preferential treatment, because if we're preferring one above another then it's not just the one, it's the another that we have to think about as well. Now, I I, I don't go in for for the the social justice concept of of safe spaces and, and living in perpetual fear of hurt feelings and all that nonsense. The Little League team that I played on, we didn't all get trophies, and I think we were the better for it. I don't think we necessarily have to try to uh to, to jockey for an equality of outcome. I believe in, in equality of circum or in, in equality of, of opportunity. I don't believe in equality of outcome. Amen. Right? I hope you believe that. Everybody ought to have the same opportunity, but we shouldn't try to try to produce equality of outcome because we can only do that through bondage. We can't do that through freedom, through liberty. But I do think we need to be cautious in how we treat other people, because when we exalt one above another, that means we are lifting one up, but we're also pushing one down. And in doing so, uh, we're doing harm, doing damage to them. We're despising them. We're pouring shame upon them. Look at the Christian perspective confirmed. uh, The end of verse number 6, verse number 7. I want to be cautious with how we handle these verses. James said, Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats." Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called. So he speaks first about rich people who bully Christians, and then he speaks about rich people who blaspheme Christ. Now, none of this is to suggest, again, that it's a sin to be rich or to be wealthy. Uh, There's a lot of people. Nicodemus uh, was a disciple of Christ. He was a man of means. Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Christ could have been buried anywhere in the world, and he chose to be buried in the tomb of a rich man. So God is not against rich people. But there is no question that money, when combined with carnality or with fleshly desire and impulse, has a tendency to bring out the absolute worst in people. Uh, There's a lot of people that could, could handle poverty a lot better than prosperity. And even believers, I've seen a lot of people that could handle adversity better than prosperity, better than leisure, better than comfort. And he just merely points out the fact that if we're going to say that a rich man is better by virtue of him being rich... James says, well, that's easy to refute because there's a lot of rich people that treat us as Christians in a terrible way. This isn't class warfare, but when a person shows partiality, they're indulging in class warfare. They're saying because that person's rich, they're better. Because that person's poor, they're worse. James is saying if we're going to play that game, then we have to at least acknowledge that it's rich men that are uh dragging Christians before judgment seats. It's rich men that are blaspheming the name of Christ predominantly. He's not saying it's wrong to be rich. But he is saying if you're going to reduce people to the collectivist class mentality, and by the way, this is getting real prevalent in society today, of reducing people to a group identity and not to an individual, that's what this whole culture war is in that we're in is about. Uh, whether we're going to view people as a group or whether we're going to view them as an individual. Communism views people as groups, as classes. Liberty views people as the individual. Freedom views people as the individual. Constitutionalism views people as the individual. And yet, even in churches, we can allow that same perspective to creep in. When we treat rich people better because they're rich, then we're yielding to that same mentality, that same attitude, that same uh, that same temptation. So uh, he mentions first that partiality is a sin against the Lord. And then he uses this as sort of a a segue, as sort of a, a stepping stone to talk about the law and how this particular sin interacts with the Old Testament law, but really how any sin interacts with the Old Testament law. He speaks of partiality as a sin against the law. And he uses a term that I think is very important in verse number 8. He says, if ye fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. Now, why does he call it the royal law? Well, when we speak of someone as being royal or regal, we're speaking of them as being in a place of supremacy. Uh, there's no office higher than the king. Uh, that's why, listen, as an American, I'm glad we don't have a king. But as a Christian, I'm glad one day our king of kings is coming back. Amen. Uh, there ain't going to be no elections then. There ain't going to be no polls then. He's coming back to assume his, his rightful place on the throne of David. A king has absolute authority, absolute jurisdiction. And so when we talk about something being royal, we're talking about it being preeminent and, and it being supreme and it being above everything else. Now, the Old Testament law could be summed up. You remember Christ made this statement. There was a, a scribe that came to him and uh, asked him his question, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, well, the greatest commandment is this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And the second, he said, is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he went a step further and made this statement. He said, on these two hang all the law and the prophets." James is talking about how we treat each other. There is a whole aspect of the Old Testament law that relates to how we treat God. But when we're talking about partiality, we're talking about how we're treating one another. And he's saying that we should not judge people based upon the outward appearance. Instead, we should let the royal law be the guiding force and and standard by which we treat one another. The commandment is very clear. Love thy neighbor as thyself. The preacher yesterday told an analogy, and this puts in in stark contrast our attitudes to the attitude of this royal law, uh, that you could imagine if a person was on their way home and they heard uh, fire trucks and uh, saw, you know, uh, lights and heard sirens and uh, they get closer to their home, they they pull onto their road and they still see them and they, they pull up to their block and it's right by their house and they rush up as quick as they can and they see that it's not their house. I mean, it's not their neighbor's house, it's their house. Their house is the one on fire. And uh, the preacher said yesterday that the royal law would dictate that a person would get out and say, well, at least it's not my neighbor's. Now, I'm not there yet. He said that same thing yesterday. He wasn't there yet. I'm not there yet. But that is the degree to which the royal law has the capacity to dictate and define our interactions with each other. In other words, it should not be looks, it should be love that determines how we treat one another in the house of God. The commendation that he gives is simple. He said, if you do that, you do well. Let me read what Paul said about this. Paul sort of expanded and expounded on this. I wasn't going to read it, but I I think I am going to take the time because Paul, uh, under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he just sums up this idea so well in Romans chapter number 13, verses 8 through 10, Paul says this, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. I don't have time to say everything I want to say about it. But suffice it to say that as James, in the perspective he had, as seeing Bible Christianity as being the culmination, the realization uh, in, in, in spiritual truth of Old Testament Judaism, he saw the epitome, the, the the climax of treatment of one towards another as being summed up. And he, no doubt he had heard the Lord Jesus say that very thing when he said on these two hang all along the law and the prophets. He viewed it as being the ability to love one another. But now he says this, when you treat each other that way, you're not doing that. We see the royal law defined, but then we see the royal law defied. Look at verse number 9. It says, but if you have respect to persons, he commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. In other words, he gives an example of what it means to defy this royal law. And he said that example is being a respect to persons. When we give preferential treatment to one Versus another, based upon superficial means, we're not operating out of love, but instead we're operating out of selfish motive. I told you that most of the time, in, in a church like ours, the way that this manifests itself is in the perspective of, of how can they help me. And even there is a tendency to view church. Uh, have you ever used uh, heard, heard somebody say this? Well, boy, they're a good church member. Well, now what does that mean? If what it means is they're faithful and they love the Lord, I can accept that. But if what they mean is the church benefits from them a lot, the church gets a lot of tithes from them, gets a lot of work out of them. Listen, we ought to appreciate what people give, both financially and in their faithfulness. But never should we reduce the position of a person in the body of Christ down to merely what we can get out of them. It's not how God views them. There have been people in my life that at one point in time I would have thought, well, boy, they don't contribute much. And it's tempting. It's easy to feel that way. And the reason it's easy is because some people do contribute much and some people don't. And yet those very people, sometimes God has used to minister in my life, sometimes blessing financial or, or encouragement, spiritual, and sometimes by teaching me and growing me and developing me as a Christian, as a pastor, Here's the point. You don't know what you may derive out of them. Only God does. And because of that, we ought to not treat them with partiality. So it gives an example. And that example is if we have respect to persons, it just lays it out. If you do that, you commit sin. And are convinced of the law as transgressors. A transgressor is someone that steps over the boundary. You've overstepped your place when you put yourself in that position. God doesn't look only on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. When we look only on the outward appearance, then we have overstepped God's metric and standard for how we are to behave. But then we see an explanation of this. Verse number 10, he says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, and by the way, these things that he mentions are on the portion of of the Ten Commandments that dealt with how we interact with each other. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So, this great principle that's conveyed is this, that the law, and you've heard this before, I know you have, the law is like a chain. Every link is of vital importance. To sever one link, you might as well have severed them all. The chain is broken. And he says that the same God that said not to kill said not to commit adultery and vice versa. The same God that gave every one of the 613 commandments in the Old Testament meant every single one of them. Now, this has an important application for you and I, but all the more for James. James would not have separated himself as distinctly from the culture of the Old Testament law as you and I have today. I don't have nothing to do with the Old Testament law. Man, I'm as Gentile as Gentile can be. Every time I see bacon, I eat it. Even if it ain't on my plate, if I can get away with it, I eat it. I don't have a single desire to follow the Old But James had grown up under the law. And James saw value in the Old Testament law. He probably saw more value than a lot of people today do. And he probably saw value in ways that it would help us to see value in the Old Testament law. And so for him to make this statement, it was very meaningful. And he goes on, and, and I don't know, we, we might even depart a little from the notes here because I really want to drive this point home. He says in verse 12, So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. What does he mean by that? He mentions a very great principle in verses 9 through 11. Verse number 12, he brings up a very good policy. He says, now listen, the Old Testament law, if a man transgressed in one offense, he was an offender, he was a transgressor of the law, and he was condemned. And if God had treated that individual... In fairness and justice, then they would have been condemned immediately and sent to hell. God didn't deal with us in that way. He instead showed mercy to us. And he's going to go on to talk about mercy here in a moment. But because we are the recipients of the mercy of God, and this was James's perspective. This is the second time he's talked about, he's used that term law of liberty. He used it earlier in chapter uh, number one when he was talking about the Old Testament law and he called it the law of liberty the way that he viewed the Old Testament law was not as being a prohibitive thing, but as being an empowering thing. You remember Christ made the statement to his disciples, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What did Christ mean? He was saying this, that they follow the law, but they do so begrudgingly, and they view the law as being a burden. But you are going to be equipped and enabled by the Spirit of God to view and have the perspective of the law that it is not something to weigh us down, but something to lift us up and something that is not meant to uh, be a burden, but a blessing and something that is not meant to hinder us, but to help us. It's going to be something that's meant not as a rule book, but as a guide book. I think that's what James means when he says that. He says the law of liberty. He's saying this, that we have been set free from the Old Testament Law, But it's not so that we can be lawless. It's so that we can instead be under the law of Christ. You know, a good example of this is you remember when Christ rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, no man had ever yet sat on this donkey and this donkey was tied up and the disciples had to go and get this donkey and loose it and bring it to Jesus. That donkey is a good example of the believer that has been loosed from the Old Testament law. Uh, here's why. That donkey would have had to have been redeemed. The Bible says in Exodus 13:13 13, 13, that the firstborn always, whenever they had a, a donkey or, or any kind of beast of burden, a, a bullock, an ox, whatever it might have been, the firstborn that was given, uh, they either had to take that firstborn and sacrifice it to God or they had to purchase a lamb and that lamb could die in the stead of that animal. The fact that this donkey was living was evidence that a lamb had died in its place. It had been purchased. It had been redeemed. It had been set uh, uh, set free from the condemnation and it had done so for a purpose. Now, here's the problem. It had been redeemed, but it had not been set free. It, it, it had its life, but it didn't have its liberty. It was tied up. And Christ tells the disciples, go and loose it. Loose it. Set it free. And I think James views the believer... Under these terms, we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. And because of that, we have been set free and we do not have to live under those Old Testament rigors. I wish he felt like that throughout his whole life. There's evidence to suggest that maybe he struggled with that principle. But here he talks about the law of liberty. And he viewed the believer as being in a position to live not under bondage, but under liberty and to obey the law, not because they had to, but because they got to. That donkey had to be released. But it wasn't released just so that it could kick. It was released so that it could carry somebody. It wasn't released so that it could stray. It was released to serve. They didn't set that donkey free and then just say, all right, there you go. Go live however you want. They took that donkey and they brought it to Jesus. And it only fulfilled and met its purpose once it uplifted and exalted the Son of God and carried him forth into Jerusalem. In other words, as believers, the law of liberty teaches us the perspective of viewing the word of God and even the Old Testament law in the terms of liberty teaches us that we have been redeemed and set free from the law, not so that we can spurn it, but rather so that we can serve God in not in the ceremonial aspects of the law, not in sacrifices, of the law but in the spiritual truth that God conveyed in the Old Testament through the law that we can fulfill and serve in spiritual vigor by the Spirit of God. James was indwelt by the Spirit of God. That began in the upper room. It was broadened at the day of Pentecost. And by the time James would have this, every single believer that came to know Christ would have been indwelt by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God empowers us to be able to do by the Spirit what we could not do simply by commandment. It says, in other words, God didn't set you free to act like somebody that treats people in a partial way. God didn't set you free and redeem you so that you'd go and do your own thing and live your own way. He set you free so that you might serve Him and manifest and minister the grace and mercy of God to other people. He brings up that term, mercy. We see in verse number 12, God's magnanimity. He says, so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty, Uh, God didn't give us, I I like this, commentator said this, God gives mankind the choice between a fair trial or a free pardon. I'd rather have the free pardon. When we treat people through partiality, we're casting judgment upon them based upon insufficient information. We're treating them uh, in a way that we ourselves would never want to be treated. When we have the choice between a fair trial or a free pardon, if we're born again, we chose a free pardon. We don't want to be judged according to how we appeared or even what we did. We wanted to be judged based upon the finished work of Calvary. And we ought to extend to others that same grace and that same treatment. Finally, he mentions God's mercy. He says, for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. He mentions first a general rule. And that general rule is this. If you don't give mercy, then you get judgment. If you give mercy, then you get mercy. Now, I think there is both a spiritual and a practical application of this. I think spiritually speaking that God is more long-suffering with those that are long-suffering with others. Now, that does not mean that God loves others based upon how they treat No, God's love is infinite. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. It's invincible. It's it's, uh, unconquerable. But God is being loving both when He is long-suffering and when He is chastening. And I think that oftentimes when we have not learned to treat one another in mercy, God sometimes has to be a little more heavy-handed in our life. You know why? To teach us mercy. Listen, the most merciful people I know are people that needed mercy. And sometimes when we won't treat people with mercy, God has to remind us just how desperately we need His mercy. There's a spiritual truth here, but there's a practical truth as well. And that practical truth is simply this. I found out that the closer I get to God, the further I am from God, the harder I am on other people and the easier I am on myself. The closer I get to God, the easier I am on other people and the harder I am on myself. And I found that when I treat people in a hard way, people have a tendency to treat me in a hard way. There's somebody, and I could mention the name right now, Right now, a preacher that I know that for a lot of years, his stick was being hard, being quarrelsome and cantankerous and combative all the time. And everybody that didn't do everything exactly the way that he did it was a a stark raving liberal. And now that guy's son pastors a church that years ago he wouldn't have been caught dead in. But now his boy has gone, I consider it to be very liberal. I consider it to be very out of keeping with the tenets and guidelines of the Word of God. And now all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, that guy has just got as soft-hearted as anybody you've ever met. You see, when when it wasn't his son, he was ready to burn everybody down. But then when it was his son, now all of a sudden, he's ready to give mercy. And I'll just tell you, and and preachers are not a good bellwether for spirituality. Sometimes we're more carnal than anybody. But I can tell you that most of the guys that I know that knew him through those years and know him now have a lot of scorn for that perspective, that attitude. They don't have a lot of mercy with him. You know why? Because he never showed no mercy to anybody. Now, they're not right in treating him that way. If I have that attitude, I'm not right in treating him that way. But it's just a fact. And when someone draws a hard line and says, everybody walk it, and if you don't walk it, then I'll have nothing to do with you. And sooner or later, when you trip and stumble off your line, they're not going to be very patient with you. You better show mercy, because one day you'll probably need it. One day you'll probably need it. I'm not talking about compromising the truth, the Word of God. I'm not talking about straying from biblical separation. But I am talking about when people fall having a heart to see them get right, and trying to do what you can to see them get right. Because one of these days, it may be you that's wrong. It may be you that's wrong. It's a very practical rule. And I like this. He gives a gracious reminder. I'll say this and I'm done. He says, and mercy rejoiceth, rejoiceth against judgment. Justice precludes mercy, but mercy prevails justice. You know... We understand this if we're born again instinctively. How many times have you heard the song? Mercy walked in and pleaded my case. Called to the stand. God's saving grace. If God had treated us in judgment, then there wouldn't be a one of us redeemed. We'd be everyone headed to hell. And good works could not prevail against God's justice. Baptism could not prevail against God's justice. Tide, money couldn't prevail against God's justice. Righteous living couldn't prevail against God's justice. The only thing that could prevail against God's justice was God's mercy. You know, the psalmist said it this way, that mercy and truth are met together. And righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The only reason you and I got in is because of the mercy of God. Mercy can go a long way. Justice can't go very far. Justice can only draw that line and say, here I stand. But mercy mercy can, like the good shepherd, go out and get that, that one that strayed and bring them back home and restore them again. That's the attitude we ought to have to people. Uh, when they've done wrong, when they're still doing wrong, we shouldn't condone their sin, we shouldn't be permissive, we shouldn't make excuses for it, but we should hope and pray that they get right. And we should extend to them the love of God by always reminding them that, hey, God loves you. God will forgive you. God will let you come home if you'll come home. We ought to treat each other not with partiality, but with mercy.